All righty. Um, good afternoon. This is Wendy Carson Smith. Thank you for joining me. This monthly teleconference is for advanced practice nurses addressing the many issues related to practice. I have designed it to allow as much discussion as possible, but with the hope that we will cover at least one or two issues per month. I do not profess to having all the answers, but with over 25 years of experience working on advanced practice, I believe I can share my knowledge as well as serve as a moderator for these calls. I've developed some ground rules which, with the hope of maximizing our ability to cover issues. For this call, I've developed notes, which I will share with you. My notes and presentation will never exceed 10 minutes. If you have recommendations for future topics, I will try to accommodate them on a first-come, first-served basis unless there is a current issue related to practice. I have specifically adjusted my agenda for this call to accommodate some current issues. Because there's so few of us, we're not going to um, place ourselves on mute, but when we start to have larger groups, we will place ourselves on mute. And in that instance, then you would hit star six to unmute, give your name, and ask a question. Hit star six once you finish the question and place yourself back in the mute mode. Um, because state laws differ considerably and change often, and we are not barred in all jurisdictions. We cannot assure that all advice will be the same for every jurisdiction. We will try to, to provide the best answer, recognize and discuss the differences in state law, and provide options. These are recommendations only. If you have specific questions, we recommend that you get an attorney to work directly with you. We can provide that kind of support, but we are not compelling you to engage us. We are providing this tele teleconference as a service and to address some of the needs you have shared with me. Should you wish to con contact us directly, please feel free to call me at 202-232-5193 or contact us by email at wycarsonsmith at gmail.com or on my Facebook page or on my website, www.carsonco.net. The first issue for today is the Department of Justice, Medicare, Strike Force, and Nurses. The Joint Department of Justice and HHS Medicare Strike Force is a multi-agency team of federal, state, and local investigators and prosecutors designed to, com to combat Medicare fraud through the use of Medicare data analysis techniques. More than 500 law enforcement agencies from the FBI, HHS, OIG, multiple Medicaid fraud control units, and other state and local law enforcement agencies have been deployed to this project. In the 2013 budget overview, DOJ requested an additional $71.7 million above the allocated appropriations just for strike force work. The FY13 budget requests additional resources to strengthen and expand DOJ and HHS strike forces. These strike forces comprise of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, special agents, litigators from both the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Criminal Division, 
and uh, and their federal, state, and local partners represent the front line of the department's efforts to address criminal fraud in in healthcare programs. In addition to supporting the strike forces, the increased funding uh, would be used will be used to support the expansion of the department's civil litigation efforts in addressing healthcare fraud, specifically in areas such as pharmaceutical fraud and off-label marketing. The funding will support the civil division as well as the U.S. Attorney's efforts to support this type of healthcare fraud. Finally, the fraud will bolster the Civil Rights Division's activity supporting health care fraud, such as eliminating abuse and grossly substandard care in public health care facilities, Medicare and Medicaid-funded nursing homes, and other long-term care facilities. It seems like a lot of money, but these funds are will be reimbursed from funds recovered from the strike force efforts. The government's healthcare fraud and prevention enforcement efforts recovered a record 4.2 billion in taxpayer dollars in FY12, up to nearly 4.1 billion in FY11. So as you can see, they are actually reimbursing back the money that they're requesting from the government, and they're running at a zero balance. They're not taking any money out out of the overall appropriations once they do the repayment. How do they do this and how are they running these strike forces? The new authorities under the Affordable Care Act granted to HHS and the Centers for Medicare have been instrumental in cramping, clamping down on fraudulent activity in health care. In FY 2012, CMS began the process of screening all 1.5 million Medicare enrolled providers through the new automated provider screening system that quickly identifies ineligible and potentially fraudulent providers and suppliers prior to enrollment or revalidation to verify the data. As a result, nearly 150,000 ineligible providers have been eliminated from Medicare's billing system. CMS also established the command center to improve health care-related fraud detection and investigation, drive innovation, and help reduce fraud and improper payments in Medicare and Medicaid. Hold on. Yeah, where am I? Yeah, okay. In Medicare and Medicaid here. Okay. And from 2011 to the end of 2012, more than 400,000 providers were subject to the new screening requirements and nearly 150,000. I did that. Okay. Okay. Let me go down here to the next place. The Department of Justice and HHS also continued their successes in civil health care fraud enforcement during 2012. The the, the the Justice Department's Civil Division Fraud Section with colleagues in U.S. attorneys' offices throughout the country obtained settlements and judgments of more than $3 billion in FY 2012 under the False Claims Act. These matter, matters included unlawful pricing by pharmaceutical and manufacturers, illegal marketing of medical devices and, pro, and pharmaceutical products not approved by the FDA, 
Medicare fraud by hospitals and other institutional providers, and violations of laws against self-referrals and kickbacks. With the strike force, they have been conducting dragnets in major cities. Over the past year, um, 2012, they conducted two major dragnets in major cities. The cities where they uh, conducted the dragnets and the numbers of parties that they picked up, I will go through below. First, in Miami, 33 defendants were charged in various fraud schemes involving a total of 204 million false billings. In a second dragnet, they um, charged 59 individuals, including three nurses and two therapists, involved in a fraudulent scheme um, which totaled over $137 million in fraudulent billing. <clears throat> in Los Angeles, 16 individuals were charged with fraud. In Dallas, 13 individuals were indicted to include two MDs and two nurses in a scheme that led to $103 million in fraudulent billing. In Houston, Seven were involved in a fraud scheme at a hospital, which led to $158 million in illegal billing of a community health center. In a second dragnet, nine individuals, including one doctor and one nurse, were charged with fraud, involving a total of 16.4 in false billings for home health care and ambulance care. In Brooklyn, 15 individuals were charged with fraudulent billing practices. In Chicago, two were charged. In Baton Rouge, seven individuals were charged um, for participating in a fraud scheme involving $225 million in false claims at a community, um, a community mental health um, clinic service. The case represents the largest community mental health center-related scheme ever prosecuted by Medicare strike forces. In Detroit, 22 defendants, including four licensed social workers, were charged with fraud schemes. So what should one look for to avoid being captured in a dragnet or getting involved in the fraudulent scheme? The first thing we see are change practices with questionable billing schemes especially new practices within your setting that are specifically designed to change the practice of the clinic or the office, especially when those change practices are not included or articulated in any office policy or in any Medicare or Medicaid memorandum. For example, in Miami, a nurse was charged for a Miami-based home care agency, a nurse, I'm sorry, who worked for a Miami-based home care agency was convicted of charging for visiting homebound patients, and she included in their charges for injecting them twice daily with insulin when neither patient was diabetic or received injections. In another case, a nurse ran a private care nursing service but failed to comply with Medicaid requirements. And when 
her and when her county was audited and when she when her um, company was audited, she made false statements to investigators. And then we know of the home health, not the home health, but the um, long-term care um, case involving um, Smith, the geriatric nurse practitioner. In that particular case, she had problems with her billing practices, and those were questioned in terms of whether or not she was properly billing and coding. Those are the types of things that they look at in terms of um, the um, Medicare fraud and abuse that make nurses, and particularly nurses practitioners, extremely um, susceptible to audit and being placed under surveillance related to um, the dragnet and the fraud and abuse um, investigations. Any questions, any comments? Barbara, have you seen folks that have gotten captured in this? Um, I actually um, have, in terms of a physician, I was actually in a practice. Mm-hmm. And that physician is, uh, I mean, a, a huge, he was charged with a whole lot of things, but um, a big part of it was um, health care fraud, um, billing fraud. And um, I actually reported him. I didn't realize he was already under investigation, but uh, they had come to me and asked me to sign some of the um, the CMS 1500, which I thought was odd. Nobody's ever asked me to sign those before. Mm-hmm. And um, all of the visits were um, 214 visits, and some of the people I had never even seen. And so I know you told them no on that. Well, yeah, I didn't sign anything mm-hmm. and uh, went ahead and uh, reported it. Bob, have you seen it on the list, sir? I haven't. Okay. Because yeah, I've I seen a couple instances where it looks like it is, but I haven't delved in it far enough when they've asked questions. But generally, it comes to like you like you said, Barbara, is that it's a change practice with the questionable billing scheme. Well, there's also the issue. I'm aware of a nurse practitioner. I, I don't know her, and I don't know firsthand. This is all secondhand. But um, <clears throat> apparently, she was, and this may I don't know. This may be the person that you were talking about, but was um, seeing patients in nursing homes. Apparently, doing bladder services, and the mm-hmm. doctor just wasn't there to um, to justify the billing. And I guess she attempted, when records were asked for, uh, attempted to redo some of the records, and, of course, there were all kinds of um, discrepancies. That That is the one I was talking about. That's the Smith case. Okay. Yeah, and she basically had too many patients which was why the the records were not complete, mm-hmm. to handle on her own. Yeah, I don't know. I know it's something I think about every single day just because I see, um, you know, my patient, my practice now is pain patients, and I spend an awful lot of time with them. And uh, I'm always having, re-looking at do I have everything documented appropriately, have I billed appropriately, and I've actually... 
um, I'm getting ready now actually just to have an uh, independent audit of my records just to make mm-hmm. sure. Well, I know because I, I worked with Diane on her um, on her case, and I can tell you it was too many, and she was trying to bring somebody in to help her, and um, she was just overwhelmed. That's why she, you know, and she was used to providing the service. It was no question of whether she provided the service, it was that the documentation was not complete. And when she went back, you're right, there were discrepancies associated with it. But I also um, contend that her um, billers should have sat her down beforehand, and it should not have gotten to the point because she used an, an external billing contractor. It was not someone um, that she employed but it was a consultant and a service, and they should have sat her down and they should have had that discussion with her about her billing before it got to that point and made recommendations of either cutting back or alternatively um, bringing in someone else to help her. Because I know at the time that um, that she was placed under investigation, she was at the time looking for a nurse practitioner to work with her. Another thing that um, came out interestingly during this time was that there was a lack of consistency between the um, Medicare interpretations on what you could and could not bill for related to incontinence and screenings. And so she could bill for one thing in her region then she had a proper interpretation for it, whereas another geriatric um, nurse doing a similar service in the screening could not use all the tools because um, there were some things that were not um, included in their screenings in uh, other regions of the country. So if they use that um, electrode for doing biofeedback, mm-hmm. You could use it in one region, but you could not use it in another. So there was a lack of consistency. So um, when the geriatric nurses met, they had to specifically look very carefully at their coding by region, couldn't take blanket that, that because they could do it in one place, they could do it in another place. So that was an issue. Some of these, um, um, the screens um, at the strike force dragnets too, some of them centered around um, uh, OxyContin and, and, the, and inappropriate prescribing and pain meds, which is why they um, have so many people that they were able to pull in with the dragnet because those who are in um, Miami, I know in Miami that they pulled in, and those in Baton Rouge were part of a, a screening where there were some issues around uh, OxyContin and inappropriate prescribing, which I will um, talk about a little bit under the second topic, which is the um, DEA registrant administrative actions against nurse prescribers. Now, if you go up on the website, they say, DEA registrant actions, administrative actions against docs. But when you go into 
that particular um, uh, page and you scroll down, you will start to see that the DEA has started to take administrative action against nurse prescribers as well as against PAs. When the uh, registration of nurse prescribers, with the registration of nurse prescribers, the DEA has begun conducting audits of nurse prescribing practices. Until 2009, the DEA did not take any administrative action against quote-unquote mid-level prescribers. Oh, I hate that term, you all. But instead relied on um, the boards of nursing to address nurse prescribing problems. However, with continued focus on controlled substance prescribing, specifically abuses of um, prescribed controlled substances, the DEA has begun to take administrative action. Thus, I found three administrative actions taken against nurse prescribers, where two of those actions were straightforward. One was a lapse rep registration. They did not... Um, and they did not come in for renewal, so there was no action to take. I think that the nurse did it deliberately because she had been disciplined by the Board of Nursing, and they had taken her ability to prescribe from her. And another was a revocation, which was based upon a criminal conviction. The third addresses the issue of utilization of diversion programs and admission of addiction, to a state board of nursing. In the, this California case, let's go down here, uh, on January 2007, the San Diego district attorney filed a felony complaint against a respondent for violations of California Health and Safety Code. It was obtaining prescriptions by fraud and deceit and the California Penal Code for burglary. Respondent pleaded guilty to a felony count of obtaining a narcotic oxycontin by means of a forged prescription in violation of California Health and Safety Code. The court deferred the entry of judgment for 18 months and ordered respondent to enroll in and complete a California Penal Code drug treatment program, which was also authorized by the State Board of Nursing. On um, respondent began the um, treatment program, which was a seven-week, three-nights-per-week program. Respondent completed the program. Respondent um, enrolled in Scripps Medicare, I'm sorry, Scripps McDonald Center's chemical dependency aftercare program one year for one night a week. Um, and they completed the survey on after they completed the program. The court dismissed the felony criminal complaint against the respondent. And on uh, and then subsequently, the Board of Nursing filed an accusi accusation against the respondent alleging unprofessional con conduct for possession of a criminal substance without a prescription and unprofessional conduct for control for use of a controlled substance. The administration adjudication is of the accusation is ongoing. In this matter, the court did not find a conviction which would lead to a revocation, but instead recommended reinstatement 
of the NP registration because she completed the Board of Nursing mandated drug rehab and diversion program and plan. Now, the DEA can do drug audits. It employs hundreds of diversion agents, investigators to monitor compliance. The diversion uh, investigators are located within DEA offices throughout the country. They report to their local office as well as to the Office of Diversion Control in Washington, D.C. The authority to conduct the audit is established by federal regulation. Diversion investigators simply arrive at the registered premises, typically the registrant's medical office, without warning as they believe the element of surprise is important to their mission and announce that they are here to conduct an audit. Diversion investigators do not carry, drunk, do not carry guns and they do not have arrest authority. They are required to present official credentials and to identify the purpose of their visit in a written notice of inspection. Typically, they will present the registrant with a written form requesting voluntary consent to conduct the audit. It is every registrant's lawful right to decline such consent. However, if they do so, the DA is required to respect the declination and must, if they wish to proceed, apply to a United States federal court for an administrative inspection warrant. This administrative inspection warrant will be routinely granted, and if lawfully granted, based upon showing, A, the DA would like, would like to conduct an audit of the DA registrant at the registrant's premises, and B, the subject is a DEA registrant. Following the authorization, the DEA will return paper in hand, but potentially will have a negative impacted attitude because they have been forced to get a warrant and they will proceed with the audit. In practice, very few DEA registrants have the personality or the conviction to decline consent and accordingly, most audits occur pursuant to the written consent. One must realize, however, that the DA is required to conduct such audits in a reasonable manner, and there may be a variety of appropriate reasons why a provider might tell the DA to come back later, at which time he or she will voluntarily consent or require the DA to secure a warrant. First, the registrant may be busy seeing patients, and the visits can be extremely disruptive, burdensome, and require the provider's immediate attention. Second, the actual registrant might not be presented and may wish to be present and may have an employee act as an agent and authorize the audit. Third, a provider may wish time to get organized for the audit, which seems a reasonable thing for a provider to do especially considering the serious nature of the audit. All of this is reasonable conduct by a DA registrant. Finally, the registrant may wish to consult with counsel prior to consenting and may wish to have counsel present during the audit. Again, this is a registrant's right and may be prudent. Counsel acting on behalf of the registrant 
may wish to engage the diversion investigators in a discussion of rescheduling the audit for a time that is better and when counsel may be present to observe. There is nothing wrong with this. On the other hand, there may be times, depending upon circumstances, when trained counsel senses that the best move is for the client to consent to the audit and allow it to proceed without further delay. What does an audit involve? Generally, the audit is a review of records at the registered location designed to determine whether the registrant is in compliance with its responsibilities under law and regulation. During the audit, there are certain things the DEA is allowed to do, and there are certain things the DEA is not allowed to do. Indeed, the authority to conduct the audit, whether voluntary or pursuant to warrant, is the same and is narrowly defined as follows. The DEA is authorized by regulation to inspect, copy, and verify the correctness of records to be kept under the Code of Federal Regulation. The authority to audit does not extend to a review of financial data, sales or pricing data, or personal records which happen to be located at the registered premises, nor does it include a review of patient charts. Generally speaking, the DEA is in there for two reasons to ensure the registrant is keeping the records required to be kept and doing an accounting to be assured there is no diversion. However, if there are problems with the registrant's records or significant accounting issues, underages or overages involve controlled substance, the registrant should be prepared for additional investigation. Also, the registrant should be aware that the right to audit does not include the right to interview witnesses, including the registrant and employees of the registrant. Even if the audit is pursuant to administrative warrant, there is no requirement that the individuals answer questions or submit to interviews. And while one might not encourage the registrant to stand mute, while the diversion investigator stared him or her. The registrant should be aware that the choice to speak belongs to the individual and that anything an employee or registrant says during the audit may be introduced in an administrative, civil, or criminal pleading against the individual. While many providers desire to see themselves as cooperating with the licensing authority, they need to realize that the DEA can have a different way of looking at things and statements a registrant makes in order to be helpful and courteous may be thrust back at them as admissions of noncompliance and possibly guilt. Thus, all registrants are well advised to be mindful of this potential and, de and to consider declining to speak other than as necessary without having consulted with counsel or having counsel present during the interview. Such counsel requests are not a matter of being dilatory, but they are a way of ensuring that the registrant is appropriately and fairly protected given the possibility of jeopardy. The takeaways are if an a DEA official comes to conduct an audit, make sure that you are a, that the person is authorized and review the paperwork so you know why they are conducting the audit. You have a right to decline the audit. 
However, if you do so, the DEA will go to federal courts, obtain an administrative inspection warrant, and they will not like that because that requires additional paperwork, so they will bring attitude into the audit. If you are a nurse prescriber and your state mandates any type of collaboration, practice agreement, or additional filings, you need to have that paperwork available. Even though they are not state auditors, they are federal auditors, the scope of their audit is is preempted by state law, and it is based upon what the state requires of you as an advanced practice nurses. So if you have to have a collaboration agreement, have it available. If you have a protocol, have it available. It will it will limit exactly what they have to audit. Likewise, if you have a collaborator, contact that party immediately and inform him or her of the audit. Likewise, if you are if you have a protocol, keep those items close at hand. I did that. Follow state and federal controlled substance laws and dispensing requirements. If you're required to refrigerate items, then do so. Make sure you have appropriate dispensing and disposal laws and keep records of your drug wholesaler. Who is the DEA targeting? Certainly anyone who has issues with prior DEA issues of noncompliance stands a greater likelihood of being audited. In addition, the nature of the provider's practice can increase the prospect of the audit. Currently, DEA has a particular focus on buprenorphine prescribing and dispensing agents and those who dispense and prescribe pain medications. So if you fall in that category, anticipate, expect, and get yourself prepared for an audit. Um, Those are my comments for today. Any questions about the uh, DEA section on administrative actions and audits? Um, I this is Barbara. Um, when I was listening to this, of course, this is this hits near and dear to my heart in many ways, but um, it sounded like. Because you said patient records were not being looked at, so if we don't have medications on the premises, then you don't. You should not have a problem. Okay. All right. So they're primarily just looking if you are dispensing controlled substances. If you're dispensing controlled substance, because if you are just prescribing controlled substances and they come on the premises, they're looking primarily at dispensing them. Okay. But if you are prescribing, you've got your um your triplicate prescription pad. No, we don't use triplicates out here, but they, they're um, on uh, protected paper. Uh-huh, okay. Because a lot of states use the triplicates, so they have those. So, But they would know when they come in that you don't use those. And right. they would And they would see something related to it. But they are not, if there is a question related to your prescribing, not to your dispensing, then they should defer to your state entity, your state Medicaid entity that tracks um, that tracks prescribing. Okay. 
because most state entities they have one where they can where they start to track it. And what they do is that if they see some outliers where you're prescribing more than they think you should of, of a drug, mm-hmm. then they blow the whistle on you to your state board or they send in their state controlled substances people to look at your at your practices. In that instance, they will look at your your records, your patient records. Right. But with the um but with the DEA, they primarily look at if you're dispensing. And some people do dispense on their site stuff. For example, if you got flu shots, you know, that's a classic, you know, right there because you buy them in bulk and then you, you know, then you Right, you, right. Yeah. Bob, any questions? Done. Okay. What I found interesting when I was doing this research that with all these nurses out here prescribing 150,000, you only have three cases that have gone through administrative adjudication. It seems like a very good number. I know. Yeah. And I only found two um, um, physician assistant cases as well in this. And while they don't do many administrative adjudications a year, they do a couple hundred per year. I think it it, it signals that nurses are um, are safe prescribers. And alternatively, if they are prescribing problems, those prescribing problems are being addressed at the state level, so they're not getting to the point where they have to um, go to the um, to the DEA. Now, um, the other um, the other issue too is that if a nurse prescri- if a nurse is is um, prescribing in a hospital where they have um, dispensing facilities, they might come in just to look at the prescribing practices of that nurse within the hospital setting, or if a nurse owns a clinic. And that clinic does um, certain dispensing of drugs, then that nurse might um, have to be accountable for um, maintenance of the laws and adhering to those requirements, and making sure that they have certain agents on on site if those parties are required by law, <coughs> i.e., a pharmacist. So those are issues that. Um, may arise as well. So, Barbara, it's in those instances and in those settings that your entrepreneurial nurse practitioner might have have a, a question or might be subject to an audit. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know of anybody that dispenses on, okay. on site as far as controlled substances go. That's a good thing. You know, yeah, and I think it is a, a very good thing. And yeah, I don't, I could not, rem, I could not think of anybody who had a serious um, controlled substance practice. The only one I thought about was that there was a nurse here who was contemplating setting up a pain um, practice, and she was going to keep some drugs on site for weekends. Mm. And when she and I talked about it, um, 
I asked her, did she realize the magnitude uh, of costs associated with um, configuring her practice because uh, she wanted to have it within her home, oh. what it would require if 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 she decided to keep any drugs on um, on site. And when she did not realize that she'd have to set up her own office and and she would have to um, maintain certain um, protections to ensure that no one could steal the the drugs, much less divert them, um, she rethought it and she was go she went back to doing a business plan in a different way. Yeah, I would I would never recommend that anybody keep anything controlled substance on on hand. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, just yeah, no, that's that's ridiculous. And you don't you know, as far as weekends, there's pharmacies are open all over the place. I know, I know, but she wanted to have it where she could do the twenty four seven because she wanted to work with people who were in pain. And um it was her business model, not my business model, because I would never recommend it. And that's why I, I went through some of the um, through some of the the um, district's requirements associated with the maintenance of the logs and and the protections that you have to have in your office if you keep those types of drugs. Mm-hmm. So um, those are my two topics for today, you all. Any other questions? No, very good though. Thank you. Yeah, no, I don't have any. I just, I'm just bristling at the fact that somebody would want to keep controlled substances. I know, I know, I know. That's why. That's. I tell you, that's one of the reasons I do these because I get all kinds of of people coming to me. <laughs> you know, there's lots of us that are working with people with pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that's a good thing. I mean, they take a lot of time, and there's certainly a lot of ways to address pain. It's not just a narcotics. I know um, I was just I just saw a presentation just the other day um, where there uh, you know Washington has a prescription monitoring plan mm-hmm. program, and they just looked at the data from the first year. And the percentage of nurse practitioners and PAs that are prescribing controlled substances is so little compared to the number of physicians. I know it. You know, when you look just at percentages, um, not numbers, but just percentages. And so, and even I know, um, you know, like in Florida where they still can't prescribe, and I guess Tennessee right now is also looking at removing nurse practitioners from uh, Schedule 2s. Yeah. So, because I just had a talk on Saturday with an NP down there. So. Yeah, you know, they are looking yeah, at... Uh-huh. They're not the problem. Uh-uh, they are, that's, that's the sad part is that, that nurses are not the problem. But yeah. they've had very high-profile cases in um, in Tennessee. And that's how they ended up with um, with the um, nurses um, being um, targeted. 
Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind of sad, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of sad. Um, because um, um, I looked at um some of those cases as well, and it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Um, in terms of um, of the numbers, that's why I put those numbers up on on the Facebook page as well, because um, I couldn't understand why they um, continue to go after after the nurses. But we got to affirmatively um, work to uh, to get. It publicized because if nurses don't have control substance authority, it will um, harm the ability of the nurse to provide the kind of care that he or she might need because it might be another control substance that is not pain related that they might need. There are a lot, you know, there are other things out there too. Right. So it's not just the pain, and, and they're focusing on pain, but they're cutting out. Uh, a, a portion of what would might be considered good care mm-hmm. by trying to make those limitations. Right. Okay. Well, thank you all. Thank you for coming, Sue. Did it help you any today? Sorry, I had myself muted. Yes, it's helped okay. us tremendously. I appreciate it. And Wendy, I probably will give you a call because. Um, as I'm building this relationship here, I will need some additional resources. So look forward to okay. a call from you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, and the um, and the tape will be up on the website if you would like to um, if you would like to listen to it, or if you want, to, or you think that somebody else might want to listen to it, because that's why we're taping them so that at least they can have some direction, some guidance, and at least know what's out there. And what's occurring. Sounds fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you all. Thank you all for giving me your hour today, and I'll talk to you next month. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks, Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.